Escape from Plan A. Welcome to Escape from Plan A. Uh, we've got a really nice episode for you lined up. Uh, this is we've been sitting in this nice uh, podcast studio. It's a really a nice step up for us. <laughs> from, this is probably the nicest. Yeah, we're uh, not sweating because the air conditioner has is broken or yeah, I miss warehouses. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So this is uh, this is a really nice setup. We just uh, we've had the we've had the recorders rolling for a while. Really special because we've got um, a guest that I've really been looking forward to to speaking with um, for a while now. Uh, New York State Assemblyman Ron T. Kim, who's in the studio with us. Say hi to everyone. Hello. Thanks for having me. Is there? Do we just call you Ron, or do you, do we need to go by something a little the bit honorable, more formal? The honorable Kim, <laughs> yeah. honorable Ron T. Kim. No, yeah. I think Ron's plenty good. Ron, Ron yeah. cool. Thanks, Ron. Cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've got Oxford here. Oxford. Hey, what's up, all? Uh, uh, Diana, all the way from Boston. Hey, everybody. And uh, Mark, Mark, what's going on? Hello. Yeah. Um, yeah, we. Uh, you know, I caught. I caught. Um, well, we maybe we should do a little housekeeping. Um, and don't forget Cass on the phone. I, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, I, I got a little too used to the fact that we're all in the room together. Uh, Casey threw you off. Yeah, yeah, threw me off. Casey, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Casey is joining us uh, from San Francisco uh, remotely. Casey, how are you? Are you there, Casey? Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I had you guys on mute. Yes. Hi. <laughs> oh, okay. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's okay. You had us on mute, and I forgot about you. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But a quick housekeeping. Uh, we we are getting ever closer to the 150 patri- patron goal. I think we're at like 140 or something, about 10 away. Uh, Mark is pretending. Well, serenade you all. He will serenade you all with, uh, I forgot, what is it? Plush? Plush by Stone Plush. Temple Pilots. Plush so by Stone you, Temple Pilots. If you like 90s rock, uh, please become a patron to hear Mark sing. Yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, so, uh, Ron, uh, I wanted, uh, thanks for coming, man. Um, I really uh, I really wanted to have a conversation with you just because um, I, well, one, I'm on Twitter, and two, I live in Queens. Hmm. And I have noticed that there is a, you know, there just is a lot of, um, there's a lot of Asian American politicization that I'm seeing going on, uh, mm-hmm. both in, you know, kind of like in Queens itself as a geographical area and on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I just kind of wanted to have a kind of a conversation about what 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 you see as well, because I see you on Twitter organizing things like watch parties for the presidential debates and organizing, you know, community gatherings to talk about sex workers' rights. And you put these pictures up and I see, you know, young people, young Asian American people in their 20s, I'm guessing, or, or maybe younger than that, maybe in their 30s, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but people are turning out. They're, they're involved at a level that I wasn't aware of. And um, so I just was very interested in that. Yeah, I mean, I think first, uh, it's not me. It's it's the or, there's organic kind of movement among, especially uh, the younger generation of Asian Americans. I'm just amplifying 
what their efforts or that's already taking place. Uh, I'm just trying to tag the old guys, just trying to tag along uh, <laughs> what all these uh, you know uh, activists are doing. And so I applaud them for stepping up and, and doing the organizing, not just for recent presidential elections, but consistently um, over the last few months for people like Tiffany Caban, right. who ran for sure. uh, in Queens and a number of other local races. And I was surprised. Like I, so when I got involved with Tiffany's campaign, just to see the sheer volume of young Asians that are showing up, not for just Asian districts, they're just they're just involved. That they get it, like they understand criminal justice, they understand economic injustice, like they get it. So, so I'm just inspired. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I mean, I think you and I are probably um, cl probably closer in age. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm, I just turned forty a couple months ago. Okay, I'm actually a little older than you. I turned I turned forty. Uh, a while ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I turned 45 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but we, I think, yeah, no, we come from the same uh, era. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I do, you know, do, I feel like it's a generational change. Mm -hmm. I think for, for, for our, uh, Mark, you're probably a little bit in our cohort as well. Yeah, a little right? closer, yeah. And um, to be political back then, I felt meant like you know you paid you watched the news and you showed up to vote, mm -hmm. and it's a little bit more than that now. I think like this is you know from, and this was kind of the genesis of like what we do for the podcast or whatever was kind of a recognition that um, political identity is being taken a little bit more seriously. Yeah, but especially by young people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think um, there's a difference between people uh, competing, trying to fit in to the political kind of ecosystem mm. versus actually feeling like we belong. And that's what we're witnessing right now. And, and, and mm. every time I speak to a young person that's getting involved, they're not just trying to buy a table at a democratic clubs, you know, <laughs> established. They're not just trying to right. fit in and, yeah, and yeah, get, yeah. A, get a pin they can wear at a function so they can feel validated. No, we're past that. These people yeah. understand that we're part of the ecosystem, we're part of the fabric, and we're going to take ownership. And that's a beautiful thing to live through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a huge change. Huge change. I mean, that's, yeah. The, the, have, having that ownership mentality is a completely different thing than what you're talking about, mm -hmm. Ron, where you just sort of go and you're going to maybe give some money and you're there and you're, you you can be used as sort of that right. diversity sort of That's salt okay. and pepper, right? Right. Um, yeah, but, Ron, uh, I just wanted to ask you uh, if you could tell us more about how you got involved in the Caban campaign. And I guess for non-New York listeners, they might not even really know who she is, although I, I do think she got a lot of like national attention. Mm -hmm. But just uh, I, I like to know like how your personal politics and your personal life led you to want to support her. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Tiffany, I met her for the first time, I think, earlier this year when she, a, a couple of months after she decided to run for office, their campaign uh, reached out. We had some mutual friends uh, that were helping her. Um, and I had endorsed and supported a couple of other progressive candidates in the past, like Zephyr Teachout and, and a couple of other candidates. So those same people were helping Tiffany. So they kind of said, oh, you should really meet you know, <laughs> Tiffany. And, I, and I, I met her for the first time. And to be candid, like I've known the other candidates that were running uh, in this for the Queens District Attorney's race. This is the first time the, the leading prosecutor of one of the largest boroughs in the entire country has an open election. Traditionally, the seat has been handpicked by the established political power brokers. Mm. The first time we have a primary, and this young Latina, queer, um, the public defender decided to run for the seat and she and I sat down and I and I just felt so touched by her passion 
and and just her ability to just step up to the plate and just do it. And I, and in all all political sense, I should have I should have endorsed somebody that I probably knew or I felt indebted to to the machine or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like this is not the moment where we have to oblige by those kind of windows dominating political currency type of systems where because I scratched your back five years ago, now you're indebted, you yeah. have to endorse this person. No, you we endorse the right person that's going to do the job for our people and for our community. And I felt like my endorsement for Tiffany, me stepping in, uh, was for me that kind of moment that, that, that I realized I wanted to be this type of politician right. versus the other type. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's no accident that that happened in Queens. You know, a local DA race anywhere in the country is probably not that big a deal, but in a Philadelphia, it makes a big difference. And in, in Queens, it makes a big difference. And I, I feel like it's part of some moment, like some momentum is happening in Queens to some extent, as I live in kind of just kind of observe, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I commentate on it, but I don't participate in it quite like the people who showed up, for example, um, to unseat Joe Crowley and that was a huge domino that fell, partially in Queens, right? Her district is kind of split between Northern Queens and, and Bronx, right? Yeah. And a lot of her support base in her office is in Queens. And then, and I think that this was a bigger event than the people of Queens even quite realize, um, was the rejection of the package that had been put together by, I think it was a both the state and the city had worked together. Both both de Blasio and Cuomo had worked on a, on a tax deal together to lure Amazon to, to build HQ2 and LIC. Mm-hmm. And it was really sort of a popul- popular um, discontent, you know, dissatisfaction with what that meant. Um, I know people were very perceptive about like why, you know, we're basically spending our tax money yep. to subsidize a rich corporation to come right. to only to drive up rents in the city. Yep. And I just felt like, man, there's so much momentum because, you know, when I talk, I was talking to my parents, I was, I went down to go visit them this past week and my dad was remarking on how the Amazon thing was showing up in Japanese and Taiwanese business news. Mm -hmm. This was a major, like no one had ever seen this before. Um, And then of course, Kaban, who was running on something, I'm I'm not intimately familiar with her, her platform, but Outsiders that are coming at a national level, and I know she got endorsements from both Warren and um, Sanders. Sanders had come and said, like, this is a revolutionary candidate in the sense of how much they want to change the, you know, the way criminal justice approaches and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like there is something happening in Queens. I don't know if you have any feelings about why that's going on here of all places. I mean, it being the most diverse. Yeah, and I think you kind of beautifully tied it all kind of together. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all interlinked. Sorry, you might want to talk Uh, about it. It's it's, it's all interlinked, and you you tied it beautifully uh, together. Um, So with the Amazon piece, you know, I stood with uh, Zephyr uh, Tishao and writing a New York Times op-ed way early in the process saying we shouldn't be giving any tax credit. This is before Andrew Cuomo decided to announce uh, the subsidies. Um, And Tiffany, and when we had that conversation, this is precisely the conversation that we had. Like we understand where the shortfalls are in our system. It's when we give, not just Amazon, but as a state, 
nine to ten billion dollars of corporate giveaways to the biggest multinational companies that don't need a dime of tech of our money. And and we continue to criminalize our poverty, which mm-hmm. leads to further dehumanization and devaluation of people that really need economic opportunities. And and oftentimes we put band-aids and pretend that we did something socially and racially progressive and call it a day. We never get to the root problem, which is that we're not giving the full economic justice that these people, especially from our communities, the migrants, the immigrants, um, they often just get vilified and demonized, but we never get the opportunities opportunities and the protection and the rights that they deserve. Do you have any thoughts though why events in Queens seems to be having I, I don't I don't know, but I just feel like there the events in Queens seems to be having national reverberations. Meaning it's amplified here. And I don't think it's an accident that um Ocasio Cortez that happened in Queens. I don't think it's an accident that Amazon it, it didn't happen down in Crystal City, Virginia. But it did happen here in Queens. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's, so. a, it's a perfect combination of um, the right elected officials stepping up um, to change, to challenge the status quo, mm-hmm. um, the right grassroots group that have been working in place for, for decades, organizing, going door to door, educating the public that, hey, stop you know, giving money to the biggest, the richest person in the world. Like we, we can use that money for our schools and subways, uh, doing all sorts of organizing and, and the elected officials that are stepping up one by one to say like enough is enough. Like we, let's, let's stop shamming our own people and pretend that we're doing something good when we're continuing to take these middle ground approaches and giving away billions of dollars when we should be helping uh, our right. communities. Wait, first. What are these groups and who, um, because, I mean, my question is, can these results be replicated in other parts of the country? Yeah, every, I think every community is different. And we are car- and we're actually part of a larger coalition of these grassroots groups that are that have been consistently meeting, which I wasn't aware of. Um, I was just invited um, to a, a conversation or even a meeting in Minnesota until they realized that elected official was invited. Now they're like, oh, wait, <laughs> can you go tell them that, to slow down? Because these are, these are very, like, you know, <laughs> grassroots groups. They don't, they don't trust politicians. <laughs> and, and understandable. Understandable, <laughs> yeah. So, so, to, so, but just to see that there, is, it wasn't just a one-time thing. People are talking and organizing and connecting different cities from, from Virginia to Tennessee, all around the place, all around the country, recognizing that there is a real problem uh, with the way we do economic uh, development in this country. Yeah. Yeah, Ron, I, I want to know more about your just like personal journey into your own politics because yeah. one thing I really want to do with Plan A is just create some like an Asian American political consciousness that feels really organic because I don't think we've ever had that. I think like older generations uh, probably skewed more conservative because, you know, we came here, a lot of us on you know, like the whole immigration system had its own, you know, political biases, you know, try to get these people here. So, uh, you know, save them from communism or stuff. So a lot of our parents might have been told, uh, you know, be, be Republican because, you know, the like socialism and communism is bad. And I feel like a lot of us more on probably like not the really wow. young people, but kind of youngish people. We grew up uh, kind of as a automatic rejection of that in which we borrowed and went into this like mainstream liberalism, especially with when someone like Obama got elected, mm-hmm. there was a very feel good kind of, uh, you know, social inclusiveness going on. But I don't think that was really organic either. Cause I think it was just simply cause we had no choice cause the you know, Republicans were just getting crazier and crazier. So, uh, 
you you seem to just ha- genuinely feel this. So I just want to know how, how you arrived at this as opposed to, you know, just being told these are the right positions to take. Mm. Uh, like how, so please tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm still learning every day. Like I'll wake up um, open-minded, trying to be inspired by others. Um, and I think that's the, my, first of all, I think it's a mindset shift that many of our generation have, that we're not fixed-minded on the way we think about anything. We're, mm-hmm. We want to be challenged every single day. Um, and and that transformed the way that I even became, I even um, behaved as a politician for the last six and a half years. Like, I was very different when I first started six and a half, six and a half years and where I am now. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. But my journey started because I came here as an immigrant, um, the only child of immigrant parents, uh, from South Korea, and they opened up just like any other, you know, Korean parents, a small grocery store in, mm-hmm. in Upper Manhattan. And it, it, when I was just about to go to high school, I remember the day when we had to shut that store down, and then mm-hmm. they had to file for bankruptcy, and just going through, going just going through the process and seeing my parents just borrow money, being in debt for 10, 15 years, and the stress, and just I lived it, and and I realized. And I spent my entire adult life trying to figure out what ha- what happened to people, immigrants and, mm-hmm. and Asians, small business owners like my parents. What happened to that so-called dream or American dream that they were promised? And and initially, just like anyone else, like I felt invalidated, ashamed. Like I maybe I blamed my parents for not working. You know, like what mm-hmm. did you do wrong? Like they, mm-hmm. what was your? What, you're too Asian, too Korean. You're just too stubborn, <laughs> right? Like like right? Yeah. You don't listen. Like a very common, right? Very story. common. Like yeah, you, you, so you, you yeah. push back, but. And then, and then you become an adult. You, you you read more, and then you started policy. And you realize they didn't have a fighting chance. Mm-hmm. Like 1980, that's when we started walking back, walking, scaling down the antitrust laws in this country. That 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 spurred a movement to subsidize the growth of these big monopolies and big corporations, and not take care of the smaller guys anymore. And and people in the past, 40 years ago, they warned our country. Like Jimmy Carter gave one of the most famous speeches, like communities over corporations. That was like 40 years ago. Saying we're doing, we're going in the wrong direction, guys. You got to support our small businesses and our local neighborhoods first. And and it was right, you know. And and that's that's where I am now, trying to tell that truth. But but even even now, like it's so clear to me that when I walk into like a high school classroom, like people, kids are like, "Wait, you trying to take on Amazon?" Like I like I like Facebook, <laughs> like Facebook. I like this. What are you talking about? Like like Amazon. Like I don't I don't mind it when they shoot me an email with the top ten shoes I should buy every day. Like, isn't that capitalism? Isn't that being efficient? I'm like, do people say that? So it's very scary. That you know, there even though we have activists, young Asians, right. but the next wave of kids have become so normal normalized um, to big tech and reliance, and, and they're okay well, just and, being commodity. Well, and it's not a um, yeah. it's not a, a like a mistake or just coming out of thin air. I mean, yeah. there's been billions of dollars spent uh, on making them that way. Um, so it, it is more it is remarkable that I think. You know, Queens has done did what it did for mm-hmm. all of all of New York, and then you know the irony is is that Amazon is going to spend money in New York City anyway. Yeah, so it, it's like they don't need the money, like you said. And we've seen. I mean, I think like um, Casey, who's out in San Francisco, we we have seen the effects of the tech corporate takeover of cities in Seattle and San Francisco. And, oh, yeah. you know, and my friend who recently moved to San Francisco, he's never lived there before. He he, he moved there um, earlier, uh, late last year, said he's he can't believe the level of homelessness and 
poverty in San Francisco itself. And it's just, it's weird. It's not, it's something like you, it's the, it's probably like the, the most expensive city in America, uh, far more concentrated wealth than even New York city. And you have just unbelievable, t you know, he's like, I see people shooting up heroin in BART stations. I didn't think that I would ever see that. Right. Um, that's what he's talking about. Uh, like truly like, you know, de just truly depressing levels of, of, of social ills. Mm. And they tried to sell us, I think they tried to sell people that there's no other way to spur improvement and growth than everything we've ever been doing post Carter, mm. which is, you know, give tax breaks to big corporations, mm. let them manage the economy, let mm. them, you know, sort, okay. put all social affairs over to um, Jeff Bezos and you'll be fine because look how awesome he is. Mm. Um, but we've, yeah. And that's, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Please. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. That's what our board of supervisors did back in 2011 when they decided to give Twitter a big tax break. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, if that went on, I think that expired last year. So they were able to go back and see, like, well, what, what were the effects of that? Did that actually help us? And I think the general consensus is that it, it just really destroyed our city. Um, I mean, really what it did was it inflated housing, right? Mm -hmm. So it did that. Um, it it actually, we thought, they thought at the time by putting Twitter right in the mid-market area that it was going to bring in like retail and um, like help give people jobs and so on. And it, it and I actually work around that area and I didn't see any of that. I, I think really that area is still pretty underdeveloped and uh, homelessness has gone up. How many so I think you guys really made the right decision. How many people does Twitter yeah. employ? I'm just wondering. Oh God, I don't. You know, I don't know. They have so everybody they they employ has to be. I mean, they're all like techies, right? So, mm -hmm. um, it <laughs> when it when we say like, oh, it's going to bring in jobs, it, they're not really employing the people who need the jobs the most in San Francisco. Right. They're bringing in other people, right? And that's what kind of inflates housing. And then they have a marketplace underneath where they employ like locals and um, like cashiers, but those are, I think there are maybe like 20 jobs there. Wow. But that, that's, <laughs> that's the logic, right? That's sort of the, the chain that they're never, people who argue for these corporate subsidies are never able to connect, right? They're like, okay, you know, we'll give Twitter this huge tax break. They're going to build a, a corporate headquarters. Like you said, Cassie, like they're going to bring in tech workers and maybe 20 like, you know, workers at their market. Is it then, getting... then how is like the rest of that those jobs going to come around, right? Is it getting better now, right. though? Because one of my friends who uh, lives out there, she said that in the past they used to have just like campuses where mm -hmm. you could like, you know, buy food from cafeterias. And now they have a city ordinance that prohibits that. And like it just makes the companies give the workers like vouchers to actually um, buy food and stuff from like local Local Maybe stores. it's changing now, but I think that's probably pretty recent. I mean, what what Cassie's describing, what Cassie's yeah. describing, is basically the old model, like you're saying, yeah. Diana. Where, yeah. you know, and it's almost whenever I hear about how like Google has their own bus, right, and their own <laughs> campus, and Apple has their own campus, I think of like the old factory towns back, like in the robber baron days, where like mm -hmm. literally people weren't paid in U.S. dollars; they were paid in like you know, Carnegie Steel Bucks or whatever, or like mining oh, Bucks. Yeah. They right? did that in the Banana Republics too yeah, but in I mean, South America. But it's almost sort of like that. Obviously, they get paid in U.S. dollars, but like 
everything is taken care of, and then none of the rest of the neighborhood gets built up, right? Like, how, just because Twitter has a headquarters doesn't mean that there's suddenly going to be, you know, like, you know, supermarkets in an area of town that need a supermarket, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to take right. care of, like, food deserts because Amazon got a, a headquarters in Long Island City. They're, they're going to build up around, you know, where, where their headquarters is, and their employees are going to earn enough money to be in other areas, in neighborhoods in the in the city that don't need any of that because they already have all the food, they mm -hmm. have all of the conveniences. Mm -hmm. So like that, the, mm -hmm. this logic that you know you give all this money to Amazon and then suddenly the city is going to be right revitalized, no one's ever been able to make that logical connection to me. That's that 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 works, and, it, and we've seen that it doesn't work, right? right. So. Right. And even when, I mean, like Salesforce and Twitter, they actually, they have like internship programs where they hire from local schools and um, they give a lot of scholarships and they donate a lot to schools. But even then, the damage that they cause just by coming into the city, all of the other stuff doesn't really like doesn't really mitigate that disparity that they've they've generated but like giving scholarships to local kids to go to college how does how does that help the neighborhood i mean maybe they go and they come are they going to come back and start a grocery store no they're going to get a college degree and like go one, somewhere one else of I, the um i mean I, I i think that's right i think you see you know we, i was saying this before that this is part of a it's a it's momentum it's part of it's a it's 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 things are pushing in the same direction so i think the same forces that cause the people to reject Amazon is also, I think, probably the same energy that pushed for the tenants' right package yeah. that yeah, you sure. and, and Uline and, and many others had been pushing uh, through the state assembly and that you basically forced the governor to sign, yeah. right? <clears throat> and that was a – I mean, for those outside New York, it's a – I mean, there's a lot of details to it, but it's a comprehensive bill mm -hmm. um, that – imposes regulations on landlords mm -hmm. to prevent them from uh, e from raising uh, rents uh, you know in a way that's um, uh, harmful to to residents and harmful to neighborhoods and things like that but that's a very different way of approaching this issue of revitalization or protecting people versus let's give tax breaks um, basically a subsidy to a large corporation. And I think that for me, uh, you know, I guess I, I would put myself sort of in the sort of like professional class or whatever. But the thing that I think traps, I mean, I think the thing that bothers people these days is like on the one hand, especially as an immigrant, you're told you got to love the country. You got to love America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yet on the other hand, you're taught by um, – you're 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 t you're taught to in internalize a hatred of government. Mm -hmm. You know, like ever since I was young, I've been told, you know, if if you if you're educated in this country, you come across free market ideology mm -hmm. and you start listening to guys like Milton Friedman go lecture you about how government bureaucrats are all worthless people. Mm -hmm. Um they're inherently fascist because they can force you force they're they they represent the lack of freedom. Mm -hmm. And that anytime you let Washington or any other bureaucrat um, manage affairs for you, mm. that that's basically antithetical to freedom. So it's like we're we're both like we're both obligated to like love the country, but then also hate the government. <laughs> and uh, I just find that to be a very that that seems to be something that has defined American politics from post Carter from Reagan up until now. Mm. And I do think that that's what's falling apart. Is why can't, why is it that 
Amazon gets tax breaks, we get nothing. Mm-hmm. Why is it that banks get bailouts, mm-hmm. we get nothing? You know, why is it that we that you know the Department of Education or the federal government guarantees the student loan that you pay to the to the private mm-hmm. lenders that do it, mm-hmm. but you're going to be on the hook forever? Mm-hmm. Um, why does the state not care for people, but it it cares for corporations? Yeah, no, it's it's you know. neoliberal ideology that was taught to the older generation we're seeing the end product of what they created for us I and mean, this is this is exactly what they deemed as uh, of an efficient productive society that we have to subsidize the, the, the biggest you know market driven corporations that are that are there to satisfy our consumer. And as long as we have a consumer-driven market society, like things will move forward in the most productive way. And it's it, we're seeing that it was one big con to extract as much money, trillions of dollars over the years to the wealthiest elites uh, in this nation. And that's why people are pissed. And and it's all, it, again, it's all into like the, the, the tenants fight. It's not just uh, us fighting for our tenants, right? It's us saying we're gonna put an end to these greedy real developers that have been extracting money from tax breaks right. for the last like 25 years that was our big <laughs> biggest sham in the, in the city of new york oh i mean it was so funny to me to read these articles that are criticizing the tenants rights bill and they're like oh this is going to mean that you know landlords they're not going to fix anything anymore i was like anymore <laughs> <laughs> like that's that that sort of criticism is someone who's never lived in new york city mm-hmm. or is a landlord right <laughs> right it's like no one would say that to be like, oh, they'll never, they're not gonna, you know, this this will lead to like rampant whatever. Yep. I'm like disrepair. I'm like, right. get out of here. Like yeah. they don't do it now. Yeah. So why would like anything? Yeah. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And what are, what are its tenants and landlords? What are its Amazon versus people on the ground? Um, what are its big tech versus us? What the narrative that they put out is is to instill fear yeah. and, and invoke insecurities among people. Because as long as we're motivated by fear, we're never going to collaborate and we're never going to cooperate and really get us really organized um, and be, be strong enough to push back. Uh, and that's what they're betting on. And that's why we criminalize yeah. poverty. That's why we're always doing so much to, to instill fear among to the people. Yeah, I, w- I once got stuck in my own bathroom because I moved into an apartment where the landlord hadn't <laughs> fixed the bathroom door. So, um, Ron, I, when I was reading up on you, I saw that one of your like uh, things that you cared most about was protecting nail salon workers. So I think when we're talking about smaller, uh, you know, local like Asian-owned businesses, that's got to be one of the biggest ones. So could you just tell us more about like what are the dangers that some of these workers face and and what we can do to help? Yeah. Uh, so the nail salon issue, this was a few years ago, um, really uh, started some of my uh, work to, to, to distinguish the difference between protecting our mom and pop small business while giving workers the rights that they deserve. And that was my first taste of David versus Goliath going up against uh, Governor Cuomo, who really was driven by the headlines of New York Times. He wanted to be the first one after New York Times did a whole series of exposés on expo- right. exploiting workers, and he, he did a task force. And I took this legislation and and really worked with this office and the advocates to come up with the law that makes sense, that we're not going to cripple 
the businesses um, because people at Governor Cuomo and the New York Times reporter neglected to report was that 40% of the workers that were being arrested at human trafficking for sex work had previously just worked at a nail salon, meaning that there's a pipeline between you know things like sex work and an underground wage, like restaurant, whatever, uh, to nail salon work. And there's, there's a lack of opportunities. And if you shut down this industry, people don't, our people are, do not have any other places to go. Um, and what he did was institute an, an unreachable mandate called the wage bond insurance, uh, which is something that uh, requires seven years of credit history. Well, immigrant small business owners don't have seven <laughs> years of credit history. This was a complete uh, made-up uh, requirement that brought in a $35 million secondary market for insurance companies to come in while while clearing the way for chain store nail salons, the bigger types to come in classic. And, and take over. Fucking classic. And, and, and no one, and I tried, and I was just like a wow. school guy, and the, I tried so man. hard. The, definitely, that's that insurance. To, to push back and, and tell that narrative. I went to New York One, everyone just, I mean, the Cuomo's world has had, had a grip on mainstream media where they planted negative stories after negative stories against me and the unions were coming after me because he was, they were working with Como. Right. So that was really a moment that was eye-awakening for me, that this is, like, I'm trying to do the right thing and, yeah. and tell the truth, but like everyone, and I was just getting beat up left and right. Well, because you're, you're trying to protect, sounds, yeah. Go ahead, Cassius. Sorry, I was just saying, that sounds so reminiscent of Yikwo v. Hopkins. Do you, Oxford, do you remember that case? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, uh, the audience does not. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Cassie, could you, could you fill in the non-lawyers in the room? Please? I don't even know. I mean, this is like from law school, but this is I mean, it, it, almost exactly the same as the Covey Hopkins back. It's a case, actually a US Supreme Court case from 1886. Oh, and this wow. is when they were trying to say that um, you know, it, uh, they, there was this law that I think it was in California that um, laundromats could not be like, like wooden laundromats are, are illegal some regulation and back then it, I mean the law was neutral on its face kind of like this one uh, you know it didn't say like oh you, you have to be a certain race or ethnicity to open a nail salon but um, once it's implemented right then you see which group is actually being affected so mm. and back then it was it, all, all of the uh, Chinese laundromats were um, I may be getting the facts wrong, but it was like it, it was a regulation that impacted Chinese um, laundromats, but was neutral on its face. And no, that's, you're it, right. This sounds a lot like that. Yeah, yeah, I read about that. It was um, wooden houses. They wouldn't permit uh, laundromats in wooden houses because the uh, uh -huh. Chinese uh, laundromats couldn't afford like brick or stone houses. Uh. So. <clears throat> Yeah. Oh, my God. There's so much legislation like that throughout history that yeah. is um, neutral on its face, but is actually racially coded. Hmm. And actually, I'm wondering, like yeah. all of this, you know, like the nail salon to sex worker pipeline, how much of it is strategically anti-immigrant, right? Hmm. Because you're criminalizing these immigrants to prevent them from naturalizing because then, you know, once they become sex workers and they're targeted for either like sex work or trafficking, human trafficking, then they don't have the good moral character to naturalize the citizens mm. eventually, and they're very uh, vulnerable for deportation. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting um, angle as well, and I think there is definitely a correlation to that, but I, I don't think they've, they're, they're even thinking 
that hard into it. I mean, they're literally they they have so they the, the institution, the government, and the stakeholders have completely checked out. Like they don't wow. care. So like, it's not even like they, they, it's not even evil. They just don't give. They a just shit. don't. They don't wow. give. And, and 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 I say this because. Um, this is a complicated issue, especially when involving um, sex workers. Mm-hmm. And I, too, you know, w- fell into that category when I first got elected because it's so complex. So how do we do? I mean, and I know it's been going on in my district in places like Flushing and Queens for as long as I remember, uh, but it's much easier for us to just look the other way and just let the so-called police and authorities just take care of it and just come in and have a nice little press conference and just control the message that you're doing, trying to do something without really fixing the problem. And and I think for me, it was really uh, recently when I had to deal with um, a person, a sex worker who died in my district. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name was Yang Song mm-hmm. uh, in 2017, where there was a record of her for almost a year and a half being targeted and there's text messages her of saying of saying she was raped at gunpoint by undercover police officer um and she reported it and no one cared and no one no one followed up and to a point where they kept targeting and micro raiding where she worked trying to flip her as an informant when she didn't they raided her again on that tragic day when she fell off the balcony and she died i mean that was after just spending all that time knowing about her and, and spending time with her family, mm-hmm. that's when I started to see this differently and I couldn't turn away. Um, but it took me that kind of, of a traumatic experience for me to really dive in and focus on it. But for most elected officials and most most decision makers, yeah. there's they, we become as a society so desensitized to violence that they don't, it, it, it's so hard. Even when they see a picture of a dead woman, yeah. Um, because she's an illegal, or she's, uh, she's, a, sex she's a sex, well, yeah. they call a prostitute, or right. they call a, a hook. All the all the little yeah. names that we Happy label ending people. Masseuse. Right. Yeah. We, it's designed to dehumanize, dehumanize yeah. right, so we can feel good when we go out and eat dinner with our families. Mm-hmm. And that's and, and that's the same thing when, in, in, in places with, 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 with in, in San Francisco. Anywhere we look, you know, it's everything, big tech, from TV to the internet, everything was created to desensitize us from violence. So we can go move forward. We can just go ahead and not care about people who are literally dying. And it's our people. It's our poverty, right. our migrants and our immigrants that are constantly being targeted, assaulted, um, raped and killed. Th- th- yeah. This 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 particular um, issue could not have been made more stark in terms of how people don't give a shit uh, than uh, recently in big news. Uh, Yang Song was big news, but like the the remember when Robert Kraft is that his name the the yeah. Patriots yeah, the, owner the, was, the Patriots was owner. Robert Kraft. yeah so he 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 was down in Florida at uh, the Orchid Spa and you. The second it happened, you know what the outcome's going to be. All charges on Robert Kraft are going to be dropped, which they were eventually, right? Yeah. Uh, and the uh, the women who work there were all arrested. I'm sure many were deported. No one ever followed up as to what happened to them because no one gives a shit. Mm-hmm. And the woman who owned the spa, uh, there was a whole thread of reporting about how she might have been a spy for China or something right. like that. Like that's how they approach this stuff. And Robert Kraft, you know – in a country that purports to be like, we're going to go after the Johns, we're going to, you know, the women are going to be protected, the workers, they're the real victims. No, they're not. You say that, but that's not, you don't know how the case is going to be resolved. And I think for this particular, I think this particular case, the Yang Song case, uh, for me was also, um, there's a racism to this case that that came through 
when I read a New York Times piece. Uh, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. I forgot. I, I forgot the name. Jane of the, Doe ponytail. Jane Doe ponytail. What? what? Ron, have you read that article? I did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I came across this article because the New York Times had been tweeting this article out as, and I knew why they were doing this. And there was a byline about how you could buy sex next to live fish in, in Flushing. It's a neon lit, blah, 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 like total Orientalist bullshit. But they put, you know, they chose this article to tweet out because they wanted to entice people into a lurid reporting on Flushing as a place of crime, as a place of illicit sex, of human trafficking, all the things you want to know about. And they, it was this article that they tweeted out. And when I read the article, it was every bit as bad as I expected. You know, not, no mention at all about the allegations of police misconduct. Uh, no interest in her as a person beyond someone who is just simply ground to a pulp by you know the the forces these these dark forces or whatever and come to flushing if you want to look at it you know stuff like this it just it was infuriating uh, so anyway that that that's what i felt about it and the appeal and I, maybe the, we can tie it back to this issue of sex work I, I i go on twitter and i do see young people that just they know the issue they when it comes to the issue of sex work uh they know what they want to say it's very simple sex work is work and it needs to be protected as work like we rely on this to make a living protect us like workers when the queen's da came out you know obviously it found no misconduct on part of police or whatever in three months yeah they closed yeah, the case they just yeah. closed the case yeah they came out and they said that and i believe it was the queen's da who said that uh that sex work is just inherently uh, degrading and humiliating. And The Appeal, which I love, The Appeal, which is a great online publication, I encourage people to go um, check them out. Um, yeah, Emma, Emma Whitford, she's been following this case for, uh, you know, since it happened in November 2017, and she's still working on it, and she's still publishing updates, um, including for, for you. Mm -hmm. She's actually at The Intercept now, too. I mean, thank God. I mean, yeah. bless her for she's doing amazing. this because she's approaching this to me yeah. as a matter of justice. This is a this this story is a matter of justice, social justice and criminal justice. Whereas for the New York Times, it's a it's a story of prurient interest. Mm -hmm. And and that's all I see from the New York Times. And, um, the you know, the appeal came out and they questioned this issue of. Why did you come out of all the things that you said? Why was it that you needed to come out and say that sex work is humiliating and degrading? How does that move the ball forward? You know, and I thought, like, you know, talk to the young people on Twitter. Yeah, they know the answer. Yeah, speaking of those young people, so what they sh what the New York Times should have covered was groups like the Red Canary Song. This is an mm -hmm. organization that started because of Yang Song, and and people, young Asian American activists and other other from other communities have gone door to door to organize and educate the sex workers on the ground and to actually spend time listening. The, so what do you need? Like, what are your needs? So what, how can we help you? Uh, do you want to learn how to speak English? It's fine. Do we, can we get you some material while you're working on it? Like, they're literally going door to door and, and empathizing with them and treating them like humans for once yeah. instead of judging them and victimizing them and, and, and just walking away feeling like they need to be rescued. They're actually saying, you deserve rights and we're going to fight for you to make sure you get your rights. 
That should have been their story. But when they published that other story, what happened was local elected officials came forward, had a press conference with the NYPD and said, we're going to clean this place up. And they came in and raided. They put a 24-7 surveillance building, uh, one of those like... Right, one of those towers. Towers right? yeah. on 40th Road invading all of our privacies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like it was like an ugly display of what not to do. Um, and it was, it was just a travesty what happened after that because these workers um, were violated more, there were more raids, and they're all cash-driven. We have no idea whenever, whenever there's a raid where that cash goes. Dude, the police take it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. I mean, like, the, the thing is, the, the police York- take that shit, and they're protecting themselves, right? I mean, look, yeah. let's not pretend that, like, the NYPD aren't some of the, you know, number one customers of these places. They're, they're protecting themselves because if that came out, and, 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 and the sex workers were given their rights and they had the same powers and standing in the criminal justice system like a Tiffany Caban would have fought for, mm-hmm. then those fucking asshole cops, they're on the, they're, they're on the line, yeah. you know? Yeah. And they're just protecting themselves. And it's just, it's awful. Yeah, and, 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 and I think about this almost. Because that, that, the picture of Yan Song, like I, I wake up and go to bed just thinking about what I saw. And no one should ever see yeah. the outcome of what happened to her. She was not just, she didn't just jump off. She was clearly in distress. And, and, there, was, and, and there was footage of her actually moving on the floor. She, on, she on died the, the next I mean, day. She, she, she didn't yeah. die on right. impact people forget that she died in pain um in the hospital and uh, you know what uh, the new york times reported they were like oh the cop that did the raid uh she fell next to him and he was he's still psychologically traumatized <laughs> by it i hope mm. fucking so yeah yeah and you know the uh the new york times did a follow-up uh article about that like in spring of this year and they were like oh you know her brother and her mother, who came from China, are going back empty-handed. Oh, well. Oh, here's what's going to happen. And they, they did talk about some political activation. Not really, but it was just like this other guy, Peter something, mm-hmm. who um, Red Canary's song actually mm. wrote about this mm. um, either in an article or on Twitter. She was saying that like that's the guy who is actually pushing for more criminalization and more police raids mm. in Queens. And they reported on that guy as yeah. like, oh, the political, you know, changes that are happening. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he's he's part of the old guard, you know, Who? political. Sorry, what is his name? He's, he's I can't a remember. local council member. He's, okay. he's being turned out, uh, this guy named Peter Koo. Um, and I was very disappointed of how, I mean, how he went forward with the press conference with the police, mm-hmm. and and they in the Red Canary they were they actually had a big uh, rally um, outside of their that's right yeah. uh, New York public New York City public uh, I, don't, I don't know like a summit to talk about human trafficking mm-hmm. and this is this is the sham of what's going on too like there's every every sex worker is themed as a human trafficked victim. And they Especially need to Especially the Asian ones. Right. And they need to be somehow safe, which further kind of dehumanizes them. Yeah. When instead of recognizing the truth that we are not providing enough economic opportunities for our immigrant and migrant brothers and sisters. Like we knew of doing that, what do you expect them to do when when we have to compete in a cutthroat market that's extracting so much money and wealth from every single day from our communities because we're giving fucking money to Amazon every day. Yeah. You know yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, she came from, uh, I mean, she's from China yeah. by way of Saipan. And I think she she and her husband had been in the restaurant business. And when she came to New York, it was not 
she did not come here trafficked by some snakehead who was like, which is totally the the yeah. angle that that yeah. New York Times is suggesting. Mm-hmm. Bang up report. They didn't give a crap about the real story, which right. is that she came here to open up a restaurant. She was in the restaurant business. That's what she wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, there were multiple and, time entrepreneurs, mm. and the reasons. The reason that their restaurant closed in Saipan was because of the um, the tsunami or something. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yes, yes, yeah, because of this like, in Japan. Yeah, it um, yeah. cut off a lot of the tourism to that area. Yeah, and so it was a series of economic and forces that kind of brought her here. But you're right. It, it there is this. It, you know, to paint someone as a victim, I think, in that way, while it seems like you're. You're you're showing empathy and love for that person. Mm. You're really you're kind of denying them the story. You're just writing a false story, right? And you can't really justify a lie to say like, yeah, but in my lie, you see, she's a victim, right? Like, yeah, it's okay, but that's not what happened. And um, I think that it's you know, it's just it's just the case where I don't think that police are. It's not just about demonizing police, right? I mean, we need police to do police things. I just don't know if this is a police thing, you know? And it, I don't know if it's part of the, the larger neoliberal construct that we've been living under, which that, you know, that the rule, the, the world is set up with certain strict, you know, rules of the market, that sex work is not valid work within this, within this economy, that police are there to enforce the rules and that's it. And it's just this very inflexible, rigid conception of how life actually works. Mm -hmm. And that I just don't think, and maybe I don't know if this is the thrust of what is, what is trying to be um, legislated in New York, Yeah, but that maybe this is just not something that police are any good at because, you know, I saw some of the surveillance video. It's terrifying. Yeah. I, she had been in, a, in and out of jail every time. Going to jail is not fun. <sighs> it is hugely disruptive to your life. Mm-hmm. It's fucking stressful. And the first thing anyone who's ever been to jail says is, I'm not, I'm, I am not going back. And I think that's probably why I'm just speculating, but that's probably part of at least why she jumped off the, the, the building. It's like, well, I'm, even, it's just, just going to be this over and over again. Yeah. Even getting arrested hmm. is so humiliating it's and It's miserable, degrading. yeah. Like I, I have black friends who have just been arrested for God knows what, and it's like they said, like you're just on the street, you know, like there's the cop is there, lights are flashing, and you're in handcuffs, and all these people are just staring at you. They walk by and stare at you and judge you, and like just that interaction is like so traumatizing, like it's unimaginable. Yeah, no, I mean some of the tougher thing at the very local level is actually dealing with our own community, some of the first generation of Asian Americans that are so ashamed of our own poverty, of our own failures, that they just see some of this work and they just, they're so judgmental and they just refuse to tell the truth about about not only sex workers, about the day laborers that are everywhere now in downtown Flushing, it's from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., to all the seniors getting on the casino Wait, bus. By day laborers, do you mean, uh, what exactly do you mean? Uh, there's people who who are just migrant workers that are looking for work for the day yeah. that oh, are just okay. tag, they oh, trying to yeah. um, we often associate hispanic workers but now it's 
mostly Chinese workers oh, in downtown Flushing. Um, seniors getting on those casino buses, like half of them are literally homeless. They're just collecting vouchers that they're selling to make rent. I mean, wow. there's poverty every invisibly going through garbage cans. You know, Asian yeah. American seniors right, going right. through. And the stats wait, wait, back you up on it. So the highest poverty rates are yeah. in the Bastard Chinese uh, Chinese yeah. uh, community. Yeah. Wait, yeah. Uh, about, that, a lot of shame uh, about that casino bus, how, how does that thing work? Um, so... Basically, they give you vouchers to go gamble, and many of them take those vouchers and sell it um, to other people at a discount for um, just nominal. Oh, so you're so saying they're making like fifteen, twenty dollars for selling this voucher. Oh, so you're yeah. saying the seniors on the bus have bought those vouchers from? No, the, you don't buy them. The you, casino they, will they, give they, you they, twenty bucks or something, yeah, right, and then to gamble. Right. So you're you there? And, to and the, it's a free bus, and then you uh, take the bus back, right, right. or you go to oh, okay. m- many uh, casinos in the area on right. one day. Uh, I see. Then you I come see. back, and then the people who are going. They'll buy it from you for right. fifteen bucks, right. and they make five bucks. It's oh, it's yeah. it's what we were talking about earlier. It's we've come for full circle. It that that's Banana Republic yeah. bucks. <laughs> it right? is no, that's, right. that's yeah. Amazon Absolutely. bucks. Yeah. Right? I mean, it doesn't really make much of a difference that you can cash it in for real money. It's just that, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's. I didn't even. I didn't know that was a thing. I mean, it, yeah. it makes sense now that you say it, but I would not have thought. Yeah, people are doing that. Yeah, and we and we refuse to. And some of the, some of our own community members refuse to accept it, and they they just choose to look the other way. That's what's most disheartening, uh, being an elected official in that district. Um, and, and speaking of sex work, you know, when the the first thing that was traded in our history, when we started doing a monetary exchange, when we actually used money to exchange value was sex work that was oh, the first thing that was that was commodified they see it in so, primates so like, they yes. see sex work in primates oh, yeah, right I, heard about that. I mean so, it's yeah. every like it's this isn't like a human thing it's a freaking animal thing right yeah, so but, like predates the sumerians and stuff but, yeah. <laughs> but, but i mean look i mean i will say like for people on 40th road in in um in flushing i think that's where it was right i mean it look it is a problem in the sense that you don't it's not a healthy sign that there's a lot of sex work going on in your community. Sure. And for the people that are doing business or living near there, it's a, it's a, it's a nuisance. It, it's, it's a, it's, it is vice. It is a nuisance. And it was the other neighbors that had called uh, to complain about this. But I think that, um, you know, I think that the, 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 you know, it's one thing to say that, the way we address the problem and the way we think about the problem, you know, like I don't think if you look at people on Twitter that are that are sex worker advocates, sex worker rights advocates, you know, nobody wants to be a sex worker forever. They do it because that is the most that's the quickest way to make a lot of money. And they have found some way to preserve the safety and dignity of right. doing that work. But they don't want that to be, you know, they want right. other work. Right. And, and, and so, I, yeah. And I bring that up because. When when they traded the first time they traded their bodies in that exchange, was they were trying to fit it in a man created monetary system, right. where as women they yeah. weren't valued as well. Much. They couldn't get they work. They couldn't in get the same work, way. right? Yeah. And we and our economy continues to do the same exact in different in different levels. All the, all the traditional woman's work, you know, taking care of our families, our kids, completely devalued oh. for the last three hundred years. Which Andrew Yang brought up in the last, which, which, which was the only one, which yeah. <laughs> which I 
give him a shout out for for actually bringing that up, uh, for taking care of our elder, elderly, taking care of our planet, all the stuff that actually creates an ad value that are wrote off as softer skills that are completely- that, that don't show up in the GDP don't numbers, show, right? Don't show up in yep. GDP. That's the core problem. As long as we continue right. to back that up, we're gonna continue to devalue um, women and, and other marginalized you know, people's work in our communities. Like unless you act, talk like a white man or that's aggressive and that are in it to dominate, yeah, like you're, the market won't reward your behaviors. That's the that, that's the ecosystem that we create. Well, and that from a from a broader level, you're talking when you talk about Ron the the like the work that adds value, sort of not being value, but everything else that is valued extracts and doesn't add. Right, it right. sort of takes away. Right, like every everything that we value are the things that don't actually add anything. They they extract mm-hmm. uh, resources. They extract all the, the excess. They don't add anything and build. Right. So it's a it's interesting from that I think broader perspective and how this our society values things not just economically but just I think in a broader societal sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of burns, another thing, uh, Ron, that I saw that you were very like passionate about is student debt forgiveness. Yeah. So, um, what what is your experience in that, and what led you to adopt that as one of your like biggest issues? Yeah. Um, I've had student debt. And I was uh, fortunate enough to pay that off right away. But we've come at a point where we're just repeating history. This was 10 years ago, uh, times like 25 worse. We, you know, we are facing almost close to $1.6 trillion of student debt. Um, and household debt overall has increased for the last like 19 months straight. All the signs are there, but mainstream media would not write about it, that we're, wa- we're literally sleepwalking into another gigantic financial crisis. Um, but, but we're not talking about it. We're just kind of pretending everything is okay, but we have an opportunity to actually reset the economy and enhance buy and write down people's debts, which is not a nuanced idea. We've done it in our history over and over when the market was failing us. But we continue to, again, adopt neoliberal ideologies that we need to invest in the big well, banks well, I and the corporations. Well, I want to correct you there because yeah. we did it in 2008. The only difference is that the yep. debts that we were canceling were between large banks. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. But it, right. So we, we will do it and we can do it. No one ever really asked where the money about for the bailout came from. No right. one really – they were kind of like, well, the government's got to do it so they'll come up with the money. When it's – Anytime it comes up, and this is the pattern, right? Anytime we have to, and this is why I thought Occupy was brilliant, because they just asked the simple question, which is where the fuck is our bailout? It's a very simple question, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And to me, I think that the idea of student loan debt forgiveness is a bit of a bailout. And I think people, students need a bailout. If you look at the average, they're they're insolvent by the time they come out. yeah. And there's and they continue to be. And it's the same <laughs> yeah, question years. that was asked right. in 2008, which right. is where is their bailout? Right. And the neo the the neoliberal framework though is like yes, but see, uh, you, you don't get anything for free. Uh, you have to build your character. Where, where like no, no, well, but where is the money going to come from? Right. Or or they say, well, so, it's not fair to people who paid it off. Or where yeah, or they'll play you against each other. They'll play you against each other. But yeah, ultimately, yeah, yeah. what they do is though they hide a lot of the fact that they do this all the damn time. Right, right. Sure. But for themselves, or and no right. one gets to question that. No one got to question the bailout until people were like, no, fuck this. 
Not no, that's not like we need to know where that. No. How did that happen? And, and right. anyone who seriously like objected to like the wars in Iraq and Iran and and and, and Af- well, Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan, for like the how are we going to pay for it? You got laughed out of the room because it's never a question of whether we're going to pay for, you know, national defense, you know, bailouts for banks. It's never a question. Yeah. So it, you know, but Rand Paul will will object futilely for paying for 9-11 first responders with his how about you know how about uh fiscal responsibility which he never brought that up when we were giving you know trillions of dollars to you know the richest ten thousand families in our country mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like it's ridiculous yeah. so if like students are saddled you know with like tens of thousands if not like hundreds of thousands of debt possibly you know, uh like i mean i think the immediate consequences are you know fairly obvious you can't like you know own homes you're you know can't like do a lot of things. Can't buy a lot of things. Are there any other like families. big ramifications for for the economy that are yeah, I mean, everyone this should is, be aware of? So it's not exactly a bailout. It's actually an investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the economists, recent times, have argued and proved that it, that immediate impact to our economic growth is tremendously greater when we invest in people. Like w- people have student debt are on average seven years behind in their economic growth. The, the ability to buy a car, a home family formations they're mm-hmm. seven years behind and if we if you wipe that they're going to invest that money right back into our communities so so it's it's actually not a complete a compassion play this is an economic argument that we're better off than investing in our people than to amazon or some of the biggest corporations so so what are the uh, opposing interests then like who's against this yeah, I mean, it's and why? Yeah. I mean, I I had the same exact conversation <laughs> with this uh, intergenerational CEO of a, a giant private equity firm. Like, oh, I have, uh, you know, I, private I, equity. I, yeah. <laughs> and 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 they were, and I actually we were at a Korean barbecue, I think, somewhere <laughs> there here. And and he was telling me straight up that, hey, Ron, what is, what do you think the biggest motivator is to the people? And it, and it was like, well, I don't know, what is it? It was like fear. <laughs> like that's that's how people are driven. Like like so that's this is this is him actually just talking on behalf of the entire elite class. They actually believe in that ideology, that debt enforces fear. That when is it enforces an artificially created economy, a scarcity economy, where where every handshake is a win lose dynamic. That it's either 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 you're taking my piece of pie or or I am. And, and and that kind of competitiveness makes us into robots, desensitizes us from the violence, and and dehumanizes as as people. And that's exactly what they need as they extract profit and it keeps every in single line, corner. Right? Yeah, exactly. it's a form of control. Like if you yeah. have to pay off debt, if you can't change jobs because you know healthcare, uh, you, you know it's you have to have your employer do it. That's a perfect way to you know yeah keep yeah. everyone in line. And that's what scares me though is because when you I mean I found that you, the way you asked that and the way you answered it is really interesting because. You're, you're, you ask him who's in, like whose interest does it serve, right? And the question, and I feel like the answer that you gave is even scarier than suggesting that someone has a vested interest in not giving people, say, some measure of debt forgiveness or or or, what, or relief. It's ideological. Yeah, it's it's, you you can't have it not because that we don't have yeah. the resources to give it to you, but because it's better for you as a human being to have that on your back. And psychological. It's yeah, like, yeah. and yeah. so it's called. It's like ideological, psychological, cultural. Yeah, it, that's where a lot of the and I think that's scarier to me in a way, but then that suggests that the answer I think is that you know we can't just limit ourselves to. PowerPoint presentations where we say, no, actually, 
This yes. will help grow the economy. Oh, Actually, yeah. at the end of the day, GDP will benefit if we just have a longer term horizon. Right. I think Andrew Yang did take a step towards that with the American scorecard to say GDP is a measure. We can't just ditch it, but it'll be one of several measures that we've got to look at in terms of human well-being and stuff. Which of course CNN was like, oh, do you mean like we're going to be like the Bhutan? Yeah, <laughs> like no, okay, okay, whatever. But I think that they were they were actually visionary. Bhutan, the king, like twenty years ago, they instituted yeah. the growth happiness. Yeah, that's what they were going. About. Yeah. I would just it's just the way they asked it was kind of like oh, oh, yeah, the optics it, of it was all like right. Anderson Cooper or something. Yeah, yeah like yeah, like yeah. come on, let's be more uh, like, Anderson yeah. Cooper, man of the people. And and so yeah, I think that you know. It, it would be so much easier to say, like, oh, yeah, it's the, you know, it's just like the interests of a few people. And if we just don't, if we just cut them out. And I think that's, that is part of, part of Bernie's campaign message that I find a little bit limiting, which is to say that it's just the financial interests of a few billionaires. And, and if we can just cut them out of politics, we're going to solve everything. And I think it goes deeper than that. Yeah. Because, um, <clears throat> no, I think there is a cultural well, it would There's be a cultural easy. problem. It, it makes people. it makes the problem seem easier to solve than it actually is. Yes, that's right. Actually, right? there's a there's a great Simpsons episode that illustrates it. It's when uh, Mr. Burns sells his power plant for like a ton of money to these German <laughs> investors, but what he realizes is, even though he's richer, he has no power over the townspeople. And he goes to Moe's bar, and uh, like uh, like Homer just sad. starts trash talking him because like he uh like I like the Germans fired Homer. He's like the only one who got fired because he's a governor. <laughs> yeah, he's a governor. But uh, so he's really upset. And then Burns realizes that oh no, it, it wasn't the money; it's the power. So he mm -hmm. goes and and buys the power plant back. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, no, I, I I hear you about about Bernie. Uh, Sanders, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's part of the role that I'm trying to play um, with this campaign and trying to con constantly make people, because I think he does understand, he does empathize, and, and when you see him talk to the people who are struggling for the last 40 years, like he, I think he literally wakes up and goes to bed thinking about people's struggles, you know, in this country. So I think he, I can believe that. I think I think he gets it, um, but that psychological cultural barrier is. I don't think he and his team has com completely articulated what the impact of a debt cancellation beyond just economic impact, like you said, is for our country. Because right now, it's not; it doesn't just impact our commercial debt. You know, I think it, it has permeated into our social debts, in meaning like the way we function in our families and our friends. It has, has especially in mm -hmm. places like cutthroat places like New York. It's about well. I bought you dinner last week, Oxford. So you know, like you haven't paid me back. Like we are like measuring our our ourselves and 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 tying our honor, integrity, and loyalty to well, the wrong type of things. It also limits and, that right. type of interaction, right? People right. who are deeply in debt will right. not go out and meet their friends as often, right? Because right. you don't want to incur that social debt where right. you're always the one that's being paid for, right. and you can't sort of you know, even if your friend won't sort of hold it against you. Right. You have that fear. Some people have that anxiety yeah. that it will be, and yeah. then it limits their own social interaction, and then that goes to communities not yeah. being built and yeah. formed. Not and only that, but it leads to depression and physical yeah. poor health. And Absolutely. That yeah. also it leads to like less output um, you know, yeah. in yeah. your job. Yeah, because we're, we're, hu we're human. We're, we're, we are innately social beings. Like we need to connect and we need to love, we need to empathize. That's like our core, but everything around us is pushing us to be something else that we're not. Yeah, and I, th I you know, I think, um, I don't know whether to 
I don't think I take her seriously as a candidate, but I do take her seriously as a person. Marianne Williamson. I like, I'm dig, I dig I her. Did, I did. <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, she's done something really interesting. And I think that, I think what she does demonstrate is that people, Americans, are much more ready and open to understand that we have, um, we have, like, we can't just blame billionaires. Which I'm not defending them. Right. But we can't just say if it was – I mean, it, it, you know what? It, like, in in a sense, like, every candidate to some degree is just offering different visions of who the enemy is. Mm. With Andrew Yang, he's saying the enemy is robots. With Trump, the enemy is immigrants and, and, and you know, non-white people in this country. With Bernie, it's billionaires. So – there are some of those – look, I'd rather ch- blame billionaires. I'd rather blame robots than immigrants and you know, p- people of color. But to some extent, they're, they're always treating – it's always timid in the sense that they're trying to appeal to a vision of their constituent base that doesn't want to accept any responsibility. They want to know. They want – they think that their constituents just want to hear – Oh, you're great. You're awesome. It's just that these people, these people or these robots are – they're the ones that have been mm. um, the problem. And Williamson takes a different approach. I think that she comes out and just says mm. that there's a there's a sort of cultural or spiritual crisis in America. And you're all part of it. All of you are part of it. <laughs> and people are ready to hear that. Well, she does do these things I think in some of her um, – I've heard in some of her gatherings or, or, or seminars she does where she has the white members turn to anyone who's black and publicly apologize right, to yeah. them, but, which sounds very awkward and, and weird to do, but it sort of goes in line with let's what... Let's give it a shot. Yeah, but it let's, goes in line okay, with what you're saying <laughs> in that she's yeah. not... she Her message isn't like, oh, everyone who's here, you guys are okay because you're at my thing. Mm. She's not sort of just absolving them. She's like, actually, you're still part of the problem and you need to apologize. Mm. I don't know whether that's going to help everything, but it's a different angle because I don't think any any political science major would tell... Ron, if he's going for re-election, to tell him his constituents <laughs> that they're part of the problem. Well, I, I don't need to. I'm, not, I'm trying. I'm not trying to paint uh, any particular politician in this room to a corner. I, I guess no, 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 something that you and I think Uline had both said on Twitter. Uline, oh, yeah, sorry, Uline yeah, yeah. um, had said um, that really interested me. I think it was Uline that said it. Uh, that she said that she just w- wishes there was a little bit more anger in the in in the um, in the people. Uh, in the community, mm. that she wanted to see people a little bit more fired Wait, which up. Which which community? Just like in general, or uh, Asian I think American? I think Asian Americans. Okay. I think she was well in you know I guess she does she represent Flushing? That she represents Lower Manhattan. Oh, Lower Manhattan. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, Lower yeah. Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, that's right. And I, I just found that really interesting. I just found that um, uh, you know we're so used to seeing politicians and leaders try and placate hmm. people and tell them like oh i'm a problem solver and we're gonna get politics out of your way and hmm. you know whatever uh to hear something like you know i wish there was a little bit more fire in the constituency is hmm. something that was new to me it's true hmm. uh but yet it just felt right i was like yeah no that's that's how i feel well, too it's, I mean, like, it's sort of you know, it's like uh, um, people I, were I, talking I, about how like oh bernie was too angry and i'm like if you're not angry you're not paying attention hmm. if you're not angry about what's going on then you're sort of what are you doing Right, you know. Right, uh, and I didn't mean to like, paint into a corner, Ryan. I was just <laughs> using that as an example of it. Yeah. But um, so, but I, I, I feel like 
with criminal justice and to get back to Tiffany Caban yeah, yeah. Um, and sort of this culture of fear. I feel like our justice system and, and maybe Cassie, you know, you, you might have some comments on this because I'm not a lawyer. I'm just sort of a layperson. But um, our system seems to be built on fear. Right. It, it's more of a retribution, like a retribution system and a punishment system than any system of, you know, we're going to try to reform people. And I, I think of like a very tragic instance of, of that happened recently with um, and I think I don't know if he's white or not, but he 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 uh, left his kids in the car and they and they I died. I think he was Latino. I think he's Latino yeah. man. And f for people who are like, we must punish him to the fullest extent of law and everything. I'm like, how is that going to change anything? Like, you know, how, how it, because not every law or our whole system, fear isn't going to prevent people from doing certain things. And that's not always the best motivator. And it's not always why people do or not do things. So I, I think for, for someone like Tiffany Gabon to say we're going to reshape how we think about criminal justice and what justice means was a fairly, a very progress. it was a different thing. Like, I don't think any DA really, or, or, or uh, someone who runs for uh, attorney general, um, really is run in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. I have a, yeah, I have a specific question for Ron regarding that. When you decided to support Tiffany, did you, were you concerned about possibly alienating, uh, alienating certain like Asian uh, voters? Because, you know, there's, there may be this feeling like these are the people that Tiffany used to represent as a public defender are the same people who used to come into our community and victimize us. And they may not, be looking further and thinking, well, you know, these people, the people that she's representing, they're also victims of like intergenerational trauma and poverty and racism. They don't really get to that point. They're just thinking these are the people who victimized our community. And we want, we want a, a district attorney who's actually going to protect us, who's actually going to, you know, go, go back to the, um, take basically the tough on crime playbook. We want to see harsher sentences, um, convictions and so on. So when you decided to support her, did you were you afraid of um, facing any backlash from the Asian community? Yeah, I mean there there was definitely uh, some backlash, and people who were very upset uh, with me going in uh, and supporting Tiffany to a point where I tried to bring her to a couple of community events, and they flat out said, "If you're gonna bring her, don't bother showing up." Wow. Um, wow. And so there was especially some of the like the small like business owners mostly men uh first generation types uh and it was it was a combination of that and they also backed the other candidate the institutional machine candidate so they felt like i was insulting them and i was they felt invalidated i was just not caring and not being a good team player and just following what they wanted to do um so it was a combination of all those things uh and it was very uh, disappointing and, and somewhat stressful at times because um, I thought that they would at least give me an opportunity to explain that there is a larger problem that we're trying to fix, that just mm -hmm. sending someone that you see, you deem um, as, as someone who is violent uh, in our community doesn't necessarily get to the root of our larger problem for you and for your kids in the future. Like just locking that person away for two years doesn't mean that we're actually gonna fix the problem uh, for our economy in the next five, 10 years. And there's a larger 
uh, criminal uh, that we should be going after, like Amazon or some of these big tech companies. And they just they didn't they didn't even give me the chance to actually do that. But um, but but that's that's a risk that I took. And in my district and in my part of the borough, uh, she actually came in second. So she right, she, she lost to the uh, the establishment candidate, but it was by only a couple hundred votes. So I feel, and I knew that um, based on the based on my constituency, that was likely the scenario. But that was a risk that I was willing to take um, because you know why? Because if I yeah, just I I, wa- I wanted to be good, feel good about what I did for my for my work. And and I wanted to wake up a month, you know, six months from now, and knew that I was doing the right thing uh, for our community. Is there gonna be a recount or anything? Just because it was so there close. There have been many. Oh, many. Yeah. I mean, she's she. I mean, she's in the courts. Into court. Yeah. yeah. She's but, been, she's down oh, by wow. sixty votes. Uh-huh. Sixty votes, and there there's a whole slew of affidavit votes, over a thousand of them that were discounted huh. um, by the courts and and I, I don't want to get into too much of it. But basically sure. if they're counted, if the if the state supreme said it's they're counted, she can actually catch up and possibly um, win. Casey asked a great question though, and I think that regard you know, there's always going to be some issue of great importance that puts us at odds with say other parts of the coalition, right? I think a big part of that has always been violence directed at, I know in San Francisco it's a big issue, it's a big issue here in New York too, violence directed at elderly uh, uh, Asian Asian people in, in the community, violence directed at, say, um, delivery men, violence directed at, um, uh, you know, their sexual violence, and, Business owners, too. And I think that there's always going to be um, a point where the, you know, our need to protect ourselves um, puts us at odds to some extent with other parts of the coalition in a very strange way. And I think Peter Liang was a case of that in New York City where me personally, I felt happy that people were crowding the courtroom in support of one of their own people. They, they saw Peter Liang as one of the, you know, a member of their community that they perceived. And I, and I, and I feel that those who say that, you know, the people who were supporting Peter Liang are short sighted. I felt that they really understood the story. I felt that they had a deep understanding of the need to find a proper uh, outlet for all the rage that was coming up because they were not going after uh NYPD officers. So we'll go after this. And it just, it put people in a very awkward position. I was of the opinion that it's like, look, sometimes you just say fuck you to the coalition and you got to go protect your own. And the coalition to me comes second to self-interest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how all communities to some extent have to, or are actually, you know, how they do it. So do you have any thought, like, it, it's still a tough topic for me because I really do believe that there is something bigger going on that, mm-hmm. and I and I want especially younger Asian Americans um, to 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 find themselves as part of that. I think that's critical. Uh, but then you get these really you know tricky issues like Peter Liang. Do you have what, what are your thoughts on that? I still haven't really gotten my that was that was a a unique case for me. So I was the only Asian elected after. 
that shooting to go down to Brooklyn and spend time with the local elected, Mr. Charles Barron, who was on the other side of this issue, and went to the side of the shooting with him. I spent six hours in Brooklyn uh, touring the pink houses where the shooting happened to mm-hmm. do the, actually walk the steps of what happened um, to Akali and his girlfriend and, and at that time. And, and for me, I didn't know why I did it, but I just <laughs> wanted to put myself in the most vulnerable kind of position to to learn you know i think mm-hmm. i think that's the best we can do as leaders and ind- individuals like you may not know the outcome of the answers but i think we shouldn't we shouldn't always try to cover ourselves with just you know the sense of feeling validated and just protect ourselves all the time i think we should constantly try to push our empathy to the fullest level um and i did that i also spent an endless days with peter and his family and set up in the back end um you know, a trust fund to make sure that his legal costs were covered. Like I, we had lawyers that stepped up for him um, and I attended his rallies, but feeling uncomfortable because yeah. what I said at the rallies, all, there was a contingency of Asian Americans that I didn't agree with, that were, they were super racist and conservative. Yeah. And I was afraid if I said something to validate their sentiment, they, they would take mm-hmm. it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like I was trying to, uh, you know, it was, it was yeah, one of most, hard, yeah. was one so hard. Com- yeah, I think that's one like, of the big, yeah, sticking points, right? Right, like I just, you know, and I'm still struggling, like how do I strike the right balance? Because there is a, a kind of an evil element in our community too that's like brewing, that are super like all about law and order and just thinking like as long as we're next to the whites and we're second in the race game, we're good. No, no, that's not what we're about, yeah. man. Like, if no, you you're, gonna, you're gonna get you're burned. Yourself. Yeah, right. But there's, a, there's, it's not, it's no joke. They're like, oh, there, no. there's a whole growing contingency that's doing that. And so I try to be as careful even though, yeah, like I protect my community, but I don't want to validate the wrong kind of ideology either in the process. Yeah, that was a, that's a super tricky. Yeah, I mean, there are no easy answers, basically. But but that is to some extent the reality of politics and the way it's racialized in America. It's 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 mm-hmm. not so simple. It's it's just like a continuous. It seems to me like a continuous negotiation. Between groups yeah. that sometimes align and sometimes don't. Yeah, and it's you know, interesting so. because you bring up you 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 don't want to bring up Marianne Williamson. Yeah. That's where I think she kind of steps in. That there is a spiritual and psychological mm. deficit in our society. Mm-hmm. That we're because we think of everything, including this conversation, as self-interest, us versus them. Someone's going to win or lose in this competition. Yeah, it's not about a comp. It shouldn't be about competition. It should be about cooperating. It should be about forging long-term partnerships, but we're not spiritually and psychologically there. Mm-hmm. And there's truth to that. I'm not sure if she's actually getting that message across and executing, <laughs> but I do I do know that, that it's, it's, re- it's resonating with a lot of young people. Number one class at NYU right now that's sought after is the psychology of love. That is the number yeah. one sought after class. So there is a whole generation that understands this, that our society is completely that we need to <laughs> well, like yeah. we need yeah. to revitalize our ability to be humans again and they're they're willing to you know go into these classes and just open themselves up and be vulnerable yeah that i i hate to say it but i i i think it i think as a society we need to kind of put our faith in young people like <laughs> faith in young people because they're i think the older generation to some extent like we've got we are who we are they are who they are um there's you want to see change with with that, but in a way, it's like you kind of let it get new shoots in there. I think that 
for people. It's just so hard to shake people out of the, you know, the 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 law and order us versus them mentality, in part because that is the reality that they lived and continue to live. Mm-hmm. And I think that the attitude of older people, it's hard to necessarily just say they're wrong because they're like, they're the realists in the room, right? They're the ones that are always like, oh, yeah, you could talk about love and psychology of love or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, that's not day-to-day, man. You know, that's not – that's that that is not what it's like to, to show up to work every day. That is not what it's like to drive a Uber in this city or whatever. You're scrapping to survive. I mean, come on. Wake wake up. Wake up to the reality. Um, and I don't know. Maybe there needs to be people to be like, how do you blunt that? How do you just kind of shove them off to, like, one side and be like, okay, okay, we get it now. All right, whatever. Let's talk about, you know – yeah, I mean, maybe young people. Um, I think that's always sort of been the cycle, right? Young mm-hmm. people are, are the hope for the future. Uh, maybe just because the, the current political and social climate it, it may be more acute than it was. But, you know, I, I feel like the world... This, this is going to get Marion Williamson. <laughs> but, like, we create our own realities in, in, the, in the futures, and, and society isn't sort of this monolith that's just out there amorphously. It's created by every one of us and how we interact with one another and how we talk and how we what we do. And if enough people act and do and and, and feel differently, society will change and move. And I think that's sort of, you know, with young people, they do feel differently. But then there, you know, there are other forces at play. We were talking earlier about how some young people, they're like, oh, what does it matter if Amazon tells me what I should like, what I should do? What, what does it matter if Netflix is the one that tells me what I should watch and, you know, whatnot? So, like, the, you know, but I do think that maybe just because of the reality of it, you know, the, the young people are um, what we should have put our hope into. But I, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, younger people, you know, older people, maybe middle-aged people um, are completely, uh, you know, uh, we should write them off. I, I think we can create our own. The society can change because we'll change. But it's hard, you know, it, it can feel hopeless. You know, I'm just one person. But I think sometimes, yeah. like, for me, where I stand, it's like my frustration with some of the more idealistic youth is their um, unwillingness to, or their unwillingness to, to believe that there are forms of prejudice and bias that are uniquely aimed at Asian people. Uh, that's true, yeah. And that there's no difference between like, you know, our racial condition versus other min- other non-white groups in America. You're talking about, like, very young Asian Americans? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, and I think, yeah, a lot of, yeah, young and idealistic. And I think on their heart's in the right place. But I think sometimes when it comes to the way that racial politics is conducted and just the sheer, mm-hmm. like, what the it's it's clever it's tricky it's not always just like you know someone telling you to go back to china but you know communities are played off one another asian people are very useful in that sense and i think that for example like the stuff about you know shsat here and harvard admissions or whatever we're always in a very tricky position with peter liang we're in a tricky position where we're we're kind of like there to kind of blow up the coalition but on the other hand, we're also being asked to, um, you know, just take one for the team without really ever getting anything back, like concrete. 
Well, I feel but, like there's a class element to that because I feel like the the people, the young people that you're talking about, they're like kind of being used to like take one for the team. They're more um, like white collar and white adjacent and they're not really affected yet. They're not part of the communities of Asian like Americans or Asian immigrants that, you know, are being bullied or, you know, uh yeah, it's like yeah. if you're like an upper class Asian who already went to the, you know, you have your Ivy degrees and then you start chastising like the poor flushing kids mm-hmm. who like whose only real chance is to get into, you know, the specialty schools. And like then you're talking about your Asian privilege. Like that, that's your thing, you know, like don't, t- don't speak for everyone. That's like that's like you. Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe that's where what you're talking about, where it's like. Maybe it's it's. A, a case where you've got to go even deeper and be like, maybe academic striving is not something that we should valorize too much. Like maybe mm-hmm. we don't, you know, like we've got to question whether we need to keep telling ourselves these stories about the immigrant um, who scrapped his way to, you know, whatever. And then his son was able to go to Harvard and that is the American success story. And that's why people come here and all this stuff. Like maybe, we do have to challenge those stories and be like, yeah, I don't know if Harvard's necessarily like the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Again, tricky. Yeah. It's tricky. Um, no, I, I, yeah. I, I just had a, I was at a conference in New Hampshire when I, I forgot the guy's name, but he was a former head of Harvard. He was like president. And everyone literally, he spoke for like 20 minutes and like half the room just got up and left because they didn't subscribe. These are like, Economists around around the country. They Wait, just, was it Larry Summers? Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like the yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like so. I mean, also don't forget Harvard also created like Facebook. They like if without Harvard, there's no Facebook. They incubated that you know, the biggest yeah. like exploitative surveillance I think that capitalist been a good thing. country. <laughs> right, right. So they're so it's not you know like well, who wants to go to Harvard these days? It's not the type of ideology that I want to subscribe to for yeah, my kids. For but, sure. But you're right. The, but but the the mindset of extrinsically co- constantly extrinsically motivating mm-hmm. to this tiger mom mentality is detrimental to our youth. Being taught to the test is not healthy for our community. But what we need is time to also have those honest, candid conversations. And when you exclude us from having policy discussions of changing the SSATTs, we are further invalidating a already insecure group of of immigrants, so mm-hmm. we so we asked to collaborate. Like I had bills for six years, and the mayor refused to even like give me a heads up. Like he just did it because he's running for president. He wanted the check mark <laughs> to say he desegregated the you know, city public schools. He was completely politicized, and he missed out on a real opportunity to get all of our communities because that SSSAT for our community is also for me a reflection of our poverty that it, that we're also victims in this process that, that we deserve better for our kids as well yeah I mean the problem with Asian Americans is we take this very valid thing we should do which is like wean ourselves off this like Ivy obsession which because let's I think a generation or so of Asian Americans have strived for the Ivies, and what have what's the result? I I look around, I don't see like many good things, uh, to be truthful. But I think a lot of Asian Americans use that as an excuse to not fight when it comes out that Harvard says, oh, you know, th- this guy's or girl's Asian, 
probably has like no personality and they don't have the guts to fight against that because they are afraid of rankling the coalition so they use this other thing saying well you know we should stop going to the ivies anyway well you can do both you can like stop going to the ivies and f- stand up for yourself yeah, yeah. oh also so i want to say that the media kind of like de uh got rid of the nuance like even of that conversation because like a lot of the even the students at harvard the asian ones who testified for affirmative action were saying on the stand like uh if there is um discrimination against asian american students that needs to be taken seriously but like in reporting that just got Mm -hmm. wiped clean i think at some i mean yeah, I mean, this is so this is so interesting because I think we started off this conversation talking about, I mean, frankly, this these are left. This is leftist politics. This is sort of like um, taking a taking a a very critical stance against capitalism, against neoliberal ideology, and this is a huge thing that's happening. This is much part of something big, and we t- talk about assimilation of Asian American group of Asian American people, particularly like second gen. And we assume that that that's what Oxford was talking about. We kind of assume that assimilation means going to elite schools, uh, working your way into the higher, more white adjacent layers of society. But we kind of are, that's missing out, I think, on the bigger wave that's coming up now. And in a way, like, to, to be a part of the sort of the much more leftist bent of the of American youth, that's a kind of assimilation. That's the assimilation that matters now for young people. If you're assimilating into the ideas of people like our age, mm. uh, you're just buying into uh, a fading stock. So in a way, I think of it like we've got to think of it in terms of age and generation where the future of this country is not going to look at all like what came what what started happening from the 80s until now i have no idea what it's going to look like but it's no one does but there you got to pick a side now mm-hmm. and i just don't think that that it works anymore i don't think the striving mentality of assimilation even works maybe we start there but it's kind of like you know um maybe pursuing self-interest right now means something different mm-hmm. for for young people I mean, yeah, I, so. I've actually read this like same sentiment um, being expressed like in other POC communities, you know, because it's like it wasn't just like Asians being able to go to Harvard. It was like black and Latino students being offered more positions. But like what happens after you graduate, like you don't get better jobs, mm-hmm. you know, like you don't move forward in your company. So like what was the point of all that education? Like and and also um, like the wealth accumulation, it doesn't happen for POCs. Like you, if you're a black person, I think it, it, no matter if you're like middle class or whatever, like there's an equally likely chance that your your children are going to be in poverty as if yeah. you are in poverty. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're a black or Hispanic person, you have to borrow more money to go to college, and you're likely to be in default of student debt when you're in college. The opportunities yeah. to pay your back the debt is no, it's not there for you. Yeah, and that's that's even if you manage to graduate college. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like so many students who get accepted and then eventually drop out, like either within four years or within the first year, and it's because of just like institutional racism like at so many levels among students among professors like mm -hmm. the mentality is like if you fail if you make one mistake that triggers this like oh well of course it's because of your race and you're put in this box of like you're actually a failure and it like um it makes uh imposter syndrome mm -hmm. really oh, yeah. really prevalent you know and it, it just like creates a psychology of like, oh, I I shouldn't be here. And eventually that just wears you down. Well, and it's not just the like you do one thing wrong. You can do nothing wrong. And it's just that you have to work a job or two jobs or three jobs to work yourself through college because the loans don't quite get you there. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then that you just, you know, some people will collapse under that burden. Mm. And I'm like. That's not to that I'm not like criticizing them. It's just saying that they will they won't be able to do that for for that for, yeah. for the four years. Mm -hmm. So then they just drop out and and you know they can't finish. I've or like you were yeah. saying, like my my a good friend of my brother who you know went to college and his whole he was he's Latino Hispanic and his whole education through like high school and college was paid for by a benefactor, and then so he was accused of a crime he didn't commit, and. The, the guy just dropped him. Oh, my God. And he would have been kicked out of school other than the fact that, you know, my family and, and a lot of other people that he had, uh, you know, gotten to know in school, you know, stood up for him. Mm. But, like, his fraternity, you know, it was a big mess. Mm. But it just sort of, like, it, he didn't do this thing. And it just sort of goes to what you're saying, Diana, that, like, any little thing happens and it's an excuse for them to kick you out. Yeah. And also, also, there are the, the, the for-profit schools that are just like scamming well, that everyone. that too. Yeah. Left and right. yeah. <laughs> I also read that like uh, POC students are more likely to need to help their family members with finances, whereas mm -hmm. white families will help the younger person with their finances. So mm -hmm. it's just it's just so many. It's like um you know death by a thousand cuts basically. Hmm. So we've got about. Uh, 20 minutes left or so in the studio. You want studio. to talk about Andrew Yang? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was on the, he was on the list. So we yeah, gotta, I thought maybe go. we could talk just briefly about, because I know it's, it's um, you know, it's uh, it's pres it's it's uh, presidential election season now, even though it's still over a year away. Hmm. Um, but we've already had all these debates. Um, we talked year. about some of the candidates just in talked the about some of the candidates already. Yeah. I know you have been um, doing like view view viewing parties and stuff for 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 younger people. And um, curious your thoughts. Like what what would well, you, you make of it? Yeah, that? I was the first elected to endorse Bernie in New York this cycle, so I'm a Bernie delegate, and I've been supporting his campaign, uh, pushing him to do the full student debt cancellation and a number of other issues. So I'm I'm proud of of the possibilities of what he could do. Um, having said that, I also met up with Andrew way early in the process. We actually had lunch and we rode the subway together and I was really into like crypto economics and he actually understood <laughs> what I was talking about. He so he was, so, so we had a blast talking about all this stuff and he actually 
came back, I think, months later, I was like, oh, I think I, I know cryptocurrencies better now. So like, so he actually does his homework and and he's a he's a, he's a good guy. I think his heart is in the right place. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with um, everything that he's laying out, especially his leading policy, the UBI, that the the way he's constructed it. I think we'll mm-hmm. eventually get to some form of UBI, but there has to be a lot of other things that needs to happen first because he's. I think the way if we just institute it right away, it's really just desocializing our entire communities and just saying, "Here's your money. The world's gonna end. Go knock yourself out." Like <laughs> that's not. Yeah. That's you know, like there's a level of and people want to feel connected. We're again, we're humans. We're and and he's ironically his his tagline I think is humanity first. So I agree with them that it is about humanity first, but we need to reconstruct and right. reconnect as a government, as a society, and and as and, and create a new social contract almost um, that people can buy into. And that takes um, more of coalition and partnership building and letting letting go of our previous ideologies. I know that this is a left-winning coalition, but it's not about, again, it's not about what, it's, it's AOC, it's not about being left or right, it's about like the bottom versus the top, you know, and and it's not about being socialist or capitalist either. The word capitalist actually came from socialist, you know, it was socialist that came up with the word capitalist, that coined that term. But it bo- in both socialist and capitalist devalued the worth of women's work for the last 150 years. So so there's a number of things economically that we need to do better and, and get, get out of the mind Instead of just categorizing ourselves between like just being a socialist or mm-hmm. or a neoliberal or a capitalist, um, and I think Andrew brings an element of that to the table, which is healthy. Um, so I think he, I think the conversation that he spurred is is brilliant, and and is pushing others to think deeper. Yeah. yeah. I- Good. Oh, yeah. I, I, Andrew, there's three things I like about him. First is that I think um, I don't I don't really know the ins and outs of UBI. I don't know how wise his plan is. Yeah, like I don't, it probably will not be a, like implemented for in the near future anyway. But I do think he's getting used to the people to the idea that that like spending money isn't gonna just blow up the country because like the it puts a solid number like a thousand dollars for everybody until I, I think there's an age limit, but it's like pretty much for life. Um, if you accept that idea, I think it makes you more uh, willing to accept other types of social spending. And I think him just running, even if, um, let's say, uh, you don't agree with his type of UBI, I think just the idea that UBI is not crazy, absolutely crazy, is helpful. I think another thing I like about him is his idea that you know the GDP is kind of worthless and that we should measure things like mental health and happiness, I think is also good. And of course, last good thing, it's nice to see an Asian person uh, on, on the debate stage uh, doing, doing well and giving younger people to someone to, you know, see themselves in, so. Yeah, 100%. And I'm, I'm glad that it's not an Asian man from like Wall Street or real estate that's running. Oh yeah, or, or, or like, like one of those like, uh, I guess, people who like, didn't want to like support you and you know you said or like or <laughs> yeah. like one of those people at the liang uh, i guess a protest who were part of that right, dark, the, dark element <laughs> right right that, that here's this guy that's you know that's a free thinker and he's challenging everyone's you know way of thinking so i think I, it, it's great i don't even see him i don't like honestly like he's just a i judge him by his his ability to present himself and, and his policies and his, i think it's been amazing so far should we just go around do you want no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. You have any? Um, yeah, I, I, I think I agree a, a lot with uh, what Oxford was saying in that um, UBI it, with social spending. You know, we were talking about it before, where 
um, you know, people just sort of think that, you know, social spending is this evil thing. But if you talk about all the things that we do spend money on socially, um, people like those things like Social Security. No one wants to take that away. Um, you know, Medicare. People like Medicare. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's good for him to, to introduce that. I agree with you, guys, with you, Ron, that his particular version of it um, is, is flawed. Um, and I wouldn't want that. But um, I like that. Um, and, you know, I, I think he's he he pre he he presents a um, problem solving mentality. Right. Like he wants to solve a problem and he's going to put his idea out there. But he doesn't uh, you know, he, he tries to avoid putting like a value judgment on like his opponents or all that stuff. He's sort of like, this is my idea. I think it's better. You know, there are flaws in other people, but he doesn't try to like put himself up on a moral sort of high horse. He's just sort of like, we want to go forward. We want to do better for people. We're people first. But he doesn't sort of say that and then compare himself against other people. He's like, I'm people first. I want to go forward. I want to solve problems. And, you know, he doesn't then frame it as like, and I, that makes me a better person or something mm -hmm. than the other people. <clears throat> I think a lot of the, the, a lot of presidential debate is sort of that, you know, I'm better and I'm a better person. And if you vote for me, you'll be a better person too. Mm. That's, yeah. I've read several articles where they said there were groups in, I don't know like how accurate these focus groups are, but they were in Flint and they were like largely yeah. black audiences. Yeah. And they actually like Yang more than Booker or Kamala, which may not, maybe a kind of low standard, but you know, still, <laughs> if that's accurate, that is saying something. I don't think most African-American voters vote based on race alone anyway. Yeah, that's probably just, yeah, it's a yeah. misconception. Well, Biden is by far, I think, has yeah. the strongest black support. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I think Yang, I, I did not like his UBI platform one bit when he first came out. And I think that he used, he was smart. He's a smart guy. And I felt that he used UBI as sort of a, as a, as a way to quickly distinguish himself on a plot policy platform. But, uh, you know, UBI is a old idea. It used to be called the negative income tax. And everything that Andrew Yang has proposed around if you I mean he's been very transparent about how he's going to fund it with a VAT tax and cut you know and and, and you have to choose between UBI and right. your existing package of right. benefits so this you know this was all stuff that came from you know Reagan era right Old friend Milton Friedman <laughs> yeah and Milton Friedman and stuff and so hmm. there's nothing in this that is in any way changing the framework of 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 the neoliberal hell that 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 most people live in, right? But it just sounds kind of cool to get a uh, thousand. I mean, everyone's going to get one hundred twenty five dollars from Equifax pretty soon. <laughs> no, uh, they, they removed that. that. Oh, okay, that. okay. See, yeah. that's sad. I but, applied. But, yeah. I applied. Oh, no. They removed it, so they went from everyone can get that or um, the fraud and fraud protection, mm -hmm. and then they're like, oh, you know, every tenth caller. Yeah, <laughs> then they'll be like, oh, then it, then it said like uh, you might not get one hundred twenty five. You can still apply. And then they took it away. So they <laughs> took it away. And the only option is to get like the 10 years free of like uh, UBI yeah. has a little bit of that quality for me. You know, it's like, oh, thousand bucks. Uh, you know, there's a beam of that guy going like this emerging class consciousness guy goes up. I'm going to give you a thousand bucks and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, yeah. Like well, that, there's an element of that to yeah, UBI. I, I think there's that. That's the big thing where it's just basically like. You know, I, well, I, what if the next president just decides to take it away? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I guess you got to enshrine it in, the, in like the Bill of Rights or something. It's, oh, it's going to be hard to take away a thousand bucks a month to everyone. Well, it's That's sort true. of like Social Security, right? Like yeah. people have been trying to take that but, away. But I forever. think true, true, I, yeah. I think that 
the way I view it is like you've got to look at it in context to um, economics and where we are. And, you know, we've not um, fundamentally. Ch- so I, did, I do have some government experience. I worked I worked mm-hmm. down in, in um, D.C. Mm-hmm. at the SEC working on Dodd-Frank and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're not any different than we were in 2008 when everything fell apart. Um, we glued everything together. We put a bailout package, and we just kept going in the same direction. And right now, um, we're we're kind of hitting a problem because like household debt is much higher than it was even prior to the crisis. So mm-hmm. we've only made the problem worse. What you really are seeing, I think, with the candidates is everyone has a v- some way of sort of extending the overhead that we have in the economy. So. The Republicans are always on on the same page. Cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. Right? Okay. Uh, the you know with with Bernie and the student debt forgiveness, that's actually in line with this idea that what we need to do is give people more space to take on more credit. Right? Um, it's about how much overhead do we have in the economy left? And and if you look at um, UBI, it's another way of saying. Look, the American consumers tapped out. How can we help them spend more, right? Mm-hmm. Can we cut debt? Can we cut taxes? Can we give them UBI? Is there any way that we can, like, juice people to spend more money? And it all boils down to the neoliberal framework where people are viewed as consumers. Mm. The one issue that doesn't, to me, fall in line with that is the Medicare for all thing. And I think that's why I do ultimately I, – I support Bernie because – he has made that front and center. He's committed himself so hard to it. And I think that Medicare for all, it, people have, they're going to have a hard time showing that that's going to help GDP. They have, it's going to be a hard time suggesting that's actually going to grow the number of jobs. It's not something that has to be wrapped in an economic neoliberal justification. It's what people want. We want health care. Right. Don't, don't give me – you know, it's not searching for ways to people to borrow more money than they already have. Uh, you know, people are talking about going to like 50-year mortgages or 100-year mortgages or whatever shit like that. Like, we can't keep doing that. And I think most of what you see in terms of the policies that are being kicked around is equivalent to finding ways to even tap us further. Mm-hmm. Get right. more out of right. us in terms of credit. Mm-hmm. Take right. on more debt. Give, or just give, give us Give cash. people the government money or increase so, the, the money supply so people can just... Yeah, it's all ways to just sort of get the money flowing, except I don't think Medicare for All is doing that. I think that's a genuine demand by the people. It's an ancillary benefit, if at all. But yeah. It'll probably hurt GDP, as far as I can tell. No one's made that argument. So I I, I think that of all the major proposals, the ones that have real um, teeth, Mm -hmm. I think Medicare for All, to me, still is the signature, uh, signature issue for the left. Uh, if you want to challenge the neoliberal framework, I think you got to start looking. You got to yeah. start with healthcare. Mm, yeah. Um, and so that's that's why I support Bernie. Yeah. So. Sorry, and Casey, mm-hmm. did you have anything you wanted to add about Andrew or Bernie or anyone else? Well, not really. I mean, with Andrew Yang, I remember I was very excited when he first announced his pres- his um, uh, that he was running for president. And I, have you guys been on his website? I have a bit, oh, yeah. but yeah. not a lot. I, I spent a lot of time on his website. I spent like one night just reading all of his policies because I remember it was very different from the you know the other candidates' websites that I've read in the past because he's just I mean his his policies are really comprehensive and it's and they're I mean he just covers a lot. Um, he does. Yeah, 
yeah. It's like a Reddit <laughs> AMA. It's almost like, it's more idealistic. Like, this is kind of, it's almost like a wish list, right? So, I, you know, I thought that was very interesting. But really, I think at this point, it's whoever, I mean, we're, I'm looking at whoever can take Trump. Okay, so I, I, I have a f- two things to say about Andrew Yang. Like, first, his memes, a lot of them are focused on, like, math and problem solving, <laughs> which it, it kind of reinforces the stereotype of, like, True. Asians, especially Asian men, being, like, robots. Um, so for a candidate to be like, oh, it's the robots that are the problem, like, <laughs> Asians are already being dehumanized that way. So if he loses or if this catches on, doesn't That's this just point. make it easier to blame Asians eventually <laughs> down the line? Because we are the robot Americans. Exactly. <laughs> That's and, a good point. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, because his platform is so idealistic and, like, his changes would be so broad, I worry that if he were to get elected or even to get the nomination and he loses or if he fails people will say oh you're you were supposed to be our asian um white asian like savior you know because like you know how companies will hire an asian as a ceo when they know when they know it's totally fucking (laughs) done and they're like this is our hail mary you know like that means this is the U.S.'s Hail Mary, and if he fails, like, everybody in the U.S. is going to scapegoat us. Oh, please don't make me think of a situation where the own, the person who fails to stop Trump's second term is an Asian dude. Like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't <laughs> even want to think about it. <laughs> but, 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 but Ka- so, Cassie, so, you know, so you're, where you are with the candidates right now is who can beat Trump? It, it's really, I mean, for me, it's really come down to that. So even if it's, Kamala Harris, because you know she's she's uh-huh. a district attorney here in San Francisco, and we, you know, as a as a criminal defense attorney out here, uh, you know, we've kind of observed a lot of what she, kind of the harm she's done to the community out here. But if she, you know, if if it if it, if it ends up being her, I mean, definitely she has my vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think to your point that. Um, Bernie is polling uh, the highest against Trump consistently than any other candidates because he's always been consistent on the issues. Like Medicare for all is not something he just came up with. Um, he's been talking about economic justice for 40 years of his life. So he, I think he doesn't have the fancy, you know, the elevator pitch or the debate zingers that other candidates may have, but his issues are consistent he's been calling for a political revolution for as long as i've like known him um and i think at the end of the day people actually gravitate toward his authenticity and his mm-hmm. honesty for sure and and that's why i think he's he's starting to resonate more and that's why he's pulling well head to head against trump um wait he did have the best singer though i wrote the damn bill thing that was a good singer yeah. <laughs> but he he's been pulling yeah. plus trump from 2016 yeah yeah well like 2015 yeah, so, I mean, I still think he's considered a political outsider, a party outsider, a party outsider. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not even an opinion. That's just a fact. It's just yeah. a fact, yeah. and, I, and, and well, it continues now. I oh, mean, in yeah. 2016, 16, that was a that was true, but they, you know, and it's still true. Oh yeah. Um, but I think you know Andrew Yang is someone who doesn't want your vote based on race. That he doesn't want that. Yeah, he doesn't sure. want you to vote for him because he's Asian. He wants you to vote for the person that you know has the best policies. Right. And mm-hmm. so I don't feel obligated to vote for him because he's Asian. I like that he's Asian. I like that he's out there doing his thing. 
And if I'm listening to what he says properly, I should go with the candidate that has, I think, the the most uh, the most chance for for radical change, not incremental, but yes. radical change. I think that's Bernie still. So, mm-hmm. um, all right, we got yeah. two minutes. Maybe we we can spend it. I'll get to know Ron the person. Ron, Ron, <laughs> Ron what's your favorite movie? <laughs> Oh, top of my head, it just came to me. Just point break, point uh, break, point break. Oh, oh. Right, the original one. Keanu Reeves and Patrick yeah. Swayze. I've never right. seen that. Wow, one. the surfing undercover cop movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to Anthony Kiedis gets shot in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. A young Keanu. Yeah, young Keanu. Was it before favorite? Speed? Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 before yeah. Speed. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite band? Favorite band. You know, I you know I was just with the friend who had Spotify. 90s grunge. Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, they're right in there. Yeah, they're right in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. a bunch of. I mean, the original Guns N' Roses was good, but All like, right. I mean, I'm also like, I, I appreciate like Neo Soul back okay. in the day, like most Def before he became famous when he used to perform at New Rican Cafe when I was growing up. Um, so between like, you know, music Soul Child comes to my mind now. I like his stuff. And uh, yeah, Nirvana. All right. Mm. Yeah. Never a bad choice. Ron T. Kim, thanks so much for, yeah, uh, for coming so on, much. man. It was, it. A, it was so much a, fun. Yeah. It just blew by like that. So. Yeah. yeah. All Thank right. you. All right. So I guess, Tina, you want to sign us off or will that? We're going to do it after. We'll just tack it on, right? Hmm? No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So bye, everyone. Okay. Bye. bye. Yeah. There you have it, your escape from Plan A for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Go to planamag.com for more content and consider supporting our Asian American Writers Fund at patreon.com slash planamag. Don't forget to rate us and subscribe. See you next week.